Genesis 18. This is God's Word. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to his servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. There, in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if, they, if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, "'Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are fifty righteous people in the city?' Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Do not, will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find forty-five there, he said, I will not destroy it. 
Once again, he spoke to him, what if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, well, I, not, I, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Amen. We trust that God will bless his word to us, John. Well, please do open your Bibles along with me to Genesis chapter 18 this morning. So Genesis chapter 18, as we make our way through this uh, chapter, and hopefully we will be able to see uh, some of the things uh, about who our God is as we make our way through. Now, uh, as, Northern Ireland, uh, as Northern Ireland now, tonight or today, stands on the eve of another election, isn't it true that uh, we love to know what our political parties stand for? We love to know what the key issues are. We love to know what their stance is. So as we come to another election, we'll want to know where, where a party stands on the Constitution of Northern Ireland, where it stands on the protocol, where it stands on the economy and education and health and environment. And that's why political parties spend thousands upon thousands upon messaging and campaign slogans so that we, the electorate, know what they stand for and so they furnish us with their little manifestos and with the details of how they're going to fix the country. The problem is that sometimes we just don't believe them in all that they say. And I leave that up to each person, whether they believe parties whenever they hand out their manifesto or not. But in a sense, what do we see here in Genesis chapter 18? Well, it's God putting forward his manifesto, as it were. Now, it's not that there are other options, but the, the illustration is that God puts forward his plan, how he's going to fix the problem of sin. And that's what we've been building through the, the life of Abraham. It starts in Genesis chapter 12, then Genesis 15, then last week, Genesis 17. And what is the title of God's manifesto? Well, it's the covenant of grace. That's, that's the title, as it were, the covenant of of grace, God's plan for how he's going to save people, how he's going to make a people for himself, how he is going to work throughout all of history to bring us to himself. It's called the covenant of grace. That's the title. That's the, the title slogan. That's the manifesto slogan, the, the slogan that should be across our minds as we think about this. So if that's the title, if that's the, the slogan, the covenant of grace, what we want to do is we want to get into the details. We want to get into the finer print. And so what we have in Genesis 18 is the covenantal God revealing what he is like. It's the covenantal God revealing what he is going to do for his covenantal people. And so what we see in Genesis chapter 18 are the things that we will then see in the Lord Jesus so the things that we have in Genesis 18 are the things that we should expect to see in the New Testament and in Jesus. And so with that in mind, we're, we're going to fold down through this passage with three points. And the first is this, that our God is a God of proximity and a God of peace. A God of proximity 
and a God of peace. Now remember I'm saying that the things that we see in Genesis 18 should show us who God is, his character, and then that they will be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So God's a proximate, a God, a God, God is a God of proximity and a God of peace. Now perhaps today you have a question, and it maybe goes something like this, does God care about me? Does he care about people? Does he care about individuals? Well, look at the details of chapter 18. As we come into it, Abram is 100 years old, and Sarah is 90 years of age. And in chapter 17 and verse 21, you'll see it, chapter 17, and in verse 21, the Lord says, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac. So the Lord has already named this son that's going to come. I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. Now, God at that point has given the promise, and he could disappear off the scene, couldn't he? We could expect that he wouldn't appear again, and yet what happens? God comes in chapter 18, in the first eight verses, and he appears again. The Lord himself appears along with two other figures. And these two figures, we know them to be the angelic figures. Why? Because Hebrews 13 and 2 makes reference to this, that you may entertain angels and not know of it. So here's the Lord. He comes with two angels, and he visits his people. What is this? This is God relating. This is God speaking. This is God eating. This is God bringing mercy and love and challenge to his people. And so the visitation, this visitation of the Lord, shows that Abraham is under the covenantal blessing. Here he is with his God. Our God coming to visit people to visit this little couple, to be in a close relationship with his people. He is coming to demonstrate how this will be the beginning of the covenant here in Genesis, but in his son it will come to a climax. And so what we see here in seed will come to full bloom in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we have, as the Lord comes to visit his people, to be with his people, to walk with his people, to talk and to eat with his people, it's an echo of Eden, isn't it? What was once perfect in Eden echoes through now into Genesis chapter 18. It's an echo of Eden, but it's also then a foretaste of what is to come in the new earth. That God will be a God who dwells with his people. There will be access, there will be close fellowship, personal interaction. God's people enjoying God's presence. God's people enjoying God's presence. And so for, for us here today, we see the detail of this manifesto of his covenant to be a God who is with his people. And then we see it fully demonstrated in the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? As Jesus comes in flesh, as he walks, as he talks, as he teaches, as he shows his followers who he is. And then we see it for us in the church as Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit to dwell within each of us. See this same principle, God being with his people. And then he doesn't just give us the Holy Spirit, but he places us in the communities, in the churches until his return promising to be in our midst as we gather here week after week. Our God is a God 
of proximity. He doesn't just leave the scene of time. He doesn't take a backward step, but he comes. So that's the first thing. He's a God of proximity, but he's also a God of peace. Now, how do we get that? He's a God of peace. Well, covenants between humans at this point in history were often arranged around meals. And covenants were a sign of peace agreements. And so what we see here is, as Abraham goes and as he prepares for the visitors a meal of sorts as they sit under this tree, you can just see Abraham sitting there in the midday sun as if he's out on his veranda, the front of his tent. He's chilling out. He's just enjoying and enjoying the heat and, and relaxing in the cool of his tent. These three visitors then appear, and quickly he gathers a meal. But what is the significance of the meal? Well, it's charted throughout the Bible. In Exodus 24, the people eat in peace whenever the covenant is given to Moses. There's a meal, peace and covenant, and a meal come together. And then in the Levitical code, there is a peace offering and a meal. And it happens again in Judges with Gideon. He's a, he has this visitation of peace, and the angel instructs him to prepare a meal. Covenant, peace, and meal. And so the Lord is eating with Abraham. Why? To show a physical symbol of the peace between God and man. So here it is in seed form, Genesis 18. And then we see it in full bloom, don't we, in the New Testament? What happens? Well, Jesus comes and he gives us the Lord's Supper, the, the new covenant. And what does that demonstrate for us as we eat of the Lord's Supper? It demonstrates in a sense that we have peace with God through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, his covenant, his peace celebrated around a meal. And so in these opening eight verses, what do we see? That God is a God of proximity and He is a God of peace. And for us here today, we know that in a fuller way than Abraham ever knew. Why? Because of Jesus. And so in our loneliness and in our fear, what do we need to know today? We need to know that God has not left us. And Christian God is at peace with you. You're not under wrath. You're under peace because of Jesus. So if you are a believer in him, if you're a follower of him, he dwells within you. He's right here with us, a God of proximity. And he will never leave us. No matter what we face, no matter what trial we walk through, I will be with you always. I will dwell with you and you will dwell with me. This is part of his promise. And that you will enjoy peace. Isn't that what Jesus comes and says to Thomas and to the disciples? My peace I give to you. This is good news for us today. The little seedlings of it here in the 18, Genesis 18, but in full bloom in Jesus Christ that comes to apply in our hearts. Now, we could dwell on that for all of our time, but we're going to try and keep moving. We're going to try and keep building blocks in place here this morning, things that we see in Genesis 18. So first of all, proximity and peace. And then secondly, we see, as we are thinking about with the children, that he's a God of promise. And this is verses 16 through 21. Now, some people make ridiculous promises, as we have thought about a little bit with the children. 
I don't know if you've ever watched the film Titanic, but Rose makes this ridiculous promise to Jack that I'll never let go. Anybody ever have a problem with that? And about three seconds later, she lets go of Jack forever, right? He makes this ridiculous promise, I'll never let go. Young couples make ridiculous promises to each other, don't they? Especially uh, young men make promises like, I'll buy you flowers for every, every week of the rest of our lives. I'll buy you a bunch of flowers. And that lasts for about three weeks, and then he forgets, and then he has no money, and then that's the way it goes, okay? He makes a ridiculous promise, but he doesn't hold up to it. Or you have that work colleague, I'm sure lots of you have them, where they promise you, they promise you, he or she promises you by the age of 45 that they will have made one million pounds and that they're going to have a, a house in Spain and a house in Florida, and they'll retire, right? Ridiculous promises, And so as you hear those, what happens? You chuckle, don't you? The person in your work while you're having a cup of coffee says, yeah, I found this latest program. It's going to make me uh, so much money, this latest cryptocurrency. I'm going to be a millionaire or a billionaire. And you sort of drink your coffee and you have a little laugh to yourself because you know it won't happen. But when God makes a promise, he will see it through to the end. God cannot do anything else Once he promises, he must see it through to the end because it's his very nature. He has to fulfill it. And so when God gives us a word in Scripture, it is safe, it is trustworthy, it is true, it is concrete, it is unshakable. But the problem with us is that we treat God's promises with contempt. We have this little giggle. We think to ourselves, yeah, right. But this is God we are dealing with. So look at verse 10. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Then Sarah, listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him, she hears this, and then in verse 12, she laughed to herself. She laughs. But what do we see? The Lord is showing this little family his love, like he has done from Genesis chapter 12. Little words of encouragement, little little moments, little nuggets to keep them going, to sustain them along the way, to keep showing them that he's going to uphold his promises. He's encouraging them. And what's Sarah's response? She laughs. And then in verse 12, what does she say? How will an old woman like me and an old man like him have a child? The natural reflex of our heart and the natural reflex of our heart, of every human heart, is whenever we hear the amazing promises of God throughout history, it is to laugh at them. It is to doubt them. And we do this in two ways. So for Sarah, she doubts the blessing. You're going to have a son and his name's Isaac and and he's going to bless the nations. Yeah, right. And people laugh whenever God promises good things. He promises salvation. He promises the forgiveness of our sins. He promises eternal life. He promises the new heaven and the new earth. People think, yeah, right. But on the other side of promises, people also laugh. So what about Eve in the garden? She, she knew the promise that if, if she were to eat of the tree, that she would fall under covenantal curse. And yet, what does she do? She doubts and she almost laughs at it. I'll be okay. God will not punish me. He'll not uphold that side of his promises. He'll only uphold the good side of his promises, the covenantal blessings, like we thought about last week. But he also will uphold the covenantal curses. Sin will be punished. 
And so Sarah looked at the promises from her perspective, and she laughed. And that's what we do, isn't it? We look at God's promises from our perspective, not from His, and we laugh, treat them with contempt. But what we see is God's promises being worked out through unlikely people and through unlikely circumstances. Isn't that what happens throughout the Bible? Unlikely people and unlikely circumstances to show what? To show that God unfolds the covenant of grace, not by people's might, not by people's strength, not by people's wisdom, but by His goodness and His grace and His provision. Unlikely people, unlikely circumstances, but that will not hinder God's plan. So what do we see in verses 13 through 15? The Lord rebukes Sarah, but he rebukes her in a kind way, but a forceful way. And look at verse 14. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Well, the verb in the Hebrew is yipala, and it has this meaning. Wonderful. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is anything too extraordinary for the Lord? Is anything too surpassing for the Lord? Absolutely not. Nothing is too extraordinary. He delights in doing which, that which seems impossible and marvelous. And so in Sarah, we see great love, as God demonstrates it, and great provision. God showing His people that nothing is impossible. And then we see it throughout Scripture, don't we? From barrenness, the Lord brings life. From slavery, the Lord will bring freedom. From the wilderness, He will bring a nation. And from the ruins, He will build a city. And so to Sarah, the promised line was given through an impossible birth. And then in the New Testament, this seed is, is replaced again, isn't it, through Mary? The promised line was given and given through what seemed like an impossible birth. Now, the challenge for us is this. Do you believe the promises of God? Or in your heart, do you laugh? Do you believe the promises of God this morning that Jesus is building His church? That Jesus is soon returning. He promises that. That Jesus will judge the living and the dead. He promises that He will do that. He promises that he will separate some to eternal joy and some to eternal punishment. He promises that death will not hold us and that he will take us to be with himself if we're Christians. He promises that the Holy Spirit lives in us. He promises that he died for us. He promises that he rose again for us. He promises that you can have your sins forgiven. God keeps His promises, and God will do exactly what He says He will do. So how do we apply this then into our lives? Well, Christian, you can find rest, sweet rest, and sweet hope in the promises of God, because your confidence is in Him and not in ourselves, because we know how the story will end, don't we? And whenever we know how the story will end, it changes everything. God's promises tell us how the story will end. And therefore, we can trust them. God is a God of proximity. He is a God of peace. He is a God of promise. And then finally, He is a God of pardon. 
He's a God of pardon in the remaining verses, verses 16 through to the end. One day, I may have shared this story before, one day whenever I was in Clarendon Junior High School, uh, I was walking, Clark will know this, walking along the top corridor, and, and there are lots of windows in Clarendon Junior High School along the top corridor, and they're on those little push bars. So you can go along and you can literally with just like a little, a little shoulder, a little elbow, you can push open the bars, right? And you can open all the windows down one quarter. Now, half of me wanted to do that for badness as a child at <laughs> Clarendon Junior High School. Half of me wanted to do it because the school was always roasting. So one day I'm going down the corridor and every window I'm, I'm nudging it open, nudging it open, nudging it open, nudging it open, all the way down and the headmaster's standing right at the back. You, it was a uh, headmaster who is now no longer with us, sadly, but he spotted me. You. And this headmaster had the ability to strike fear in you from about 100 meters away. What are you doing? And here's me, a little boy. Oh, I, 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 I'm just opening the windows. I'm just opening the windows. You're going to have to stay behind for two weeks and close every window in the school. Mum was going on holidays, and I was thinking, I said, sir, but my mum's going on holidays and not have a left home. He says, be at my office at lunchtime. And I thought, this is it. Mr. Dixon's going to be bad enough, but whenever I get home to mum, I am ruined, right? So what did I think? Thought up a little plan. What am I going to do? I'm going to go to my school mum, who was my form teacher. First year at Clarendon Junior High School, a lady called Mrs. Corrigan, and I thought, maybe, maybe she'll be able to have a word. Well, Went to Mrs. Corrigan, probably cried as a 12-year-old or 11-year-old boy, and, and I went to Mr. Dixon's office at lunchtime. And he said, what are you here for? I said, you told me to come to your office and open the windows, go back to class. And I was delighted, right? Mrs. Corrigan, what had Mrs. Corrigan done? She had stepped in. She had become an advocate for me. She had spoken with Mr. Dixon on my behalf and said, look, that little lad, he has no harm in him. He didn't mean to cause any offense, right? <laughs> she, sp she, she spoke to Mr. Dixon on my behalf. An advocate, she stood in my place. And this is what we see in seedling form here in Genesis 18, that the Lord invites Abraham to be this priest, to be the advocate for people. He invites him to come to draw near. Look at verse 23. The words of the ASV is draw near, but in the words of the NIV, approach. And it's a legal term. It's in the Hebrew verb, it's a legal term. God is inviting Abraham to approach the bar and to make his case for the people. Now, what do we see in this passage? Well, we see that Abraham had failed to be a prophet. Just a few verses earlier, what do I mean by that? Well, the Lord says to Abraham and to his wife, twice about this promise. And he had already given the promise in chapter 17. So what's a prophet meant to do? He's meant to speak the word of the Lord. And Abraham had failed his wife in this prophet-like status. He had failed to remind her of the promise of God. He had failed to speak the word of God. So he had failed as a prophet, this threefold office that is established with Adam, prophet, priest, and king in the garden that Jesus fulfills. So he, he fails as a prophet, and here the Lord gives him a chance at being a priest, to plead for the people, to be an advocate for the people. And so what do we see? He pleads for the city. Look at verse 24. He pleads for the, the place, for the sake of it all. And he's pleading not just for his own people, but for Canaanites. 
Ezekiel 16 and 49 tells us that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was the sin of pride and of excess of food and this prosperous ease that was there, that they did not aid the poor and the needy. It was a wicked place. But this is remarkable intercession on behalf of the people. Abraham acting as a priest, an intercessor, an advocate. And so verse 25, what does he do in this legal sense as he's at the bar? He approaches to God's very character, him being just. And that's why I asked the Lord, will you not, please do not destroy those who are obedient with those who are righteous. And so what's the seed that we see here in Genesis 18? It's the principle of pardon, the principle of mercy being established. Mercy on the grounds of what? On the grounds of righteousness. Abraham exploring, could God view the righteousness of the few as grounds for persevering and preserving the lives of the many? Could a small minority in their righteousness bring life to the city? And so Abraham asks, for 50, for 45, for 40, for 30, for 20, for 10, and God continues to say yes. And here in this part, I'm leaning largely upon Tim Keller and a sermon that he has on this. Because Tim Keller says that at this moment, what do we see? We see that God has granted pardon for the sake of righteousness, and Abraham gets to 10, and then he bottles it as a priest. He goes home. He misses the open goal, as it were. And Keller says it's like the whole way through this little refrain, we're waiting for the crescendo, the, the, the symphony to be finished. And at the very moment, at the crescendo, nothing. Silence. Abraham falls short. A little quote that Keller has is this. He said, he found a path through the seemingly impregnable mountains of God's justice, but he couldn't walk through it. His priesthood is good, but it falls short. And so the climax of chapter 18 should be not 10 people, righteous people, but one. And yet Abram doesn't ask. Abram's high priestly work could not save and it falls short, but he discovers. What does he discover? That God is a God of pardon. A God of pardon. And so what do we see throughout Genesis 18? That this passage is, is heavy. It's pregnant with anticipation of Jesus. The one who would provide what? The first few verses, a peace meal. Then the one who would be the final promised seed of peace, as we think about Sarah and Isaac. And then the one in this little section, the, the priestly pre peace bringer. The priestly peace bringer. All fulfilled in Jesus. Abram pleaded for people who were wicked. Jesus pleaded for the forgiveness of those who were killing him. Abram was a priest for a place. Jesus is the great priest for every soul on the planet that would repent and believe. Abram risked his life for the people that he prayed for by approaching God as he comes to the bar. Jesus gave his life so that others could come close, boldly approach the throne of grace. 
And so Abram discovered the principle in seed form, and then Jesus fulfills it. And so we can complete today, as we draw to a close, the symphony of chapter 18 in Jesus by asking the Lord, will you save because of the righteousness of one? And the Lord will reply, yes, if it is my son. This is the gospel, that we, the unrighteous, share in his righteousness. As it were, he dresses us with his righteousness. He puts the cloak of righteousness on our cold and naked, unrighteous bodies. Jesus living to intercede for his people. And so that's what Jesus does. The work, the priestly work, the bridge between God and people. Think about it like this as we close. Think about it as Jesus being this great giant in all of history, and there's a great canyon between us and God. And God's on one side of the canyon, and we're on the other side. God's land is a land of of life and light, and on the dark side, on the other side of the canyon, is a land of death and darkness. And Jesus, this great giant, spans across this great canyon, a foot on God's side and a foot on our side, the world's side, as he comes to us. And then he calls to all of the people that live in this land of darkness and under darkness and death, come to me, repent, believe in me, and I'll save you. I'll I'll rescue you. And so as as people come to him, what does Jesus do? He, as it were, he scoops them up in his hand and he transfers them from the, the kingdom of darkness and death over into the kingdom of light and kingdom of life, into God's kingdom this great giant standing across this chasm of sin, one that we can't bridge by ourselves. And he's willing to scoop people up and to transfer them over because of his work, because of Calvary and the work of the cross. And so the question is, will we come? Will we come to him, our great high priest? And the other application of this is, Whenever Peter says that you are a priesthood, a royal priesthood as people of the church, will we then operate in that sense, being a bridge as Christians between the world and our God, taking people from the world and pointing them towards our God? This passage is so full, isn't it? So full of rich allusions of who Jesus is, who our God is, the covenant of grace, and then we're into the details of it. Here we see it in seed form, and we see it in Jesus in its fullest form. Our covenant-keeping God is one of proximity. He's one of peace. He's one of promise, and he's one of pardon. This is incredible good news for us. May we live in light of it.